Okay, well, let's get going. I think we are, uh, yes, we're at the right time. Okay, well, uh, let's have a word of prayer. We're going to, uh, today we talk about the threeness of God. Last week we talked about God's oneness. And uh, so this one will probably be a little more familiar to you since this is what we normally talk about when we talk about the Trinity. So um, I'm excited. I hope it comes across well. We'll see. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the blessing of knowing you, for you revealing yourself in your word. We pray for wisdom, Lord, as we think on these things that uh, we speak rightly about who you are and, and your being. Pray that you would even... Um, allow uh, what we come to know of you to be able to apply this to, to our lives today and even how we treat each other. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, if you would turn to Colossians 1. Colossians 1. What, we're, what I want to try and do is... Um, structure our lesson today around scripture, uh, I think it works best that way, uh, instead of talking about God in an ethereal way, or just have you take my word for it, uh, that maybe we can talk about uh, the Trinity better this way. Um, just to review from last week, uh, was there uh, anything you learned last week about God's oneness that uh, might be helpful or that you found helpful or that you knew but you liked? Yes, sir. Uh, the fact that we're not supposed to try and wrap our minds around that oneness, the three in one, but just tuck them in our hearts. Yeah. We manage to just love them in our hearts. Right. Yes. We keep... Uh, the danger, and I think this will even happen when we talk about his, his threeness, um, the danger is trying to make God into a uh, superman that we can understand. Um, and so what people have done, even with God's threeness, is they've said, well, God really is just one, but he wears three hats. And we get uh, the heresy... Um, that God really in his essence is just one and sometimes he has his father hat on sometimes he wears his son hat and he just goes through these different modes and we call that modalism not an easy thing to do and so he has this mode of um, he has this mode of fatherness a mode of sonness but really he's just one there's even a guy um, and you don't have to remember his name, but uh, Karl Barth, who came up with this idea that God has, is a threefold repetition. And at first it sounded really good, but once you start thinking about what that means, what you're really saying is God really somewhere in the back of all eternity is this one thing that replicated himself three times. And again, we're not, that's not what we're saying. But that makes it easy for a human to understand because you just make God into a Superman who can now replicate himself three times. 
Does that make sense? So the danger is, I want to understand this, so I'm going to create Superman. But what we got to do is try to hold back that temptation and really rest in the mystery of God. And let that be an exciting thing. Uh, like I said before, when scientists discover something that doesn't make any sense, when quantum mechanics came along, uh, scientists were just overwhelmed because um, quantum mechanics defies almost every, physic, every physical law that they thought was solid. And it defies it. You have protons that can be in three to four to five to six places all at the same time. So they call it a wave, but they don't know what that really means, right? There seems to be this particle that can be in different places at the same time. And they don't say, I give up. I can't understand it. I give up on physics. And they walk away. No, they're fascinated. They're excited. Why does that excite them? Because they're convinced it's absolutely true. They just don't understand it. And it's exciting. What we do as Christians, we're like, I can't understand it. Therefore, I just don't know about my thing. Right? We're just the exact opposite. And it, it really goes against what faith is. And that's some, uh, one thing we're going to actually talk about today as we talk about the Trinity's work. Okay. So let's talk about Colossians 15. Uh, Colossians is a great place to start because uh, the Colossians, of the, the people, um, were beginning to believe in a heresy. Now remember we talked about last week a heresy is something you believe about God that if you believe that, you're no longer believing in our God anymore. Um, and they were starting to do that. It was called the Colossian heresy. Now, how would you like your church to be named after a heresy? That would be, that's pretty, pretty humbling, right? Oh, you go to the Trinity in Spartanburg. Yeah, oh yeah. They're the heretics, right? You don't want that. So what they were starting to believe was that um, Jesus uh, was given some divinity, but wasn't exactly God. Okay, so God the Father really was God, and God the Son wasn't really God. He was just given this supernatural power of divinity. And so what were they trying to do? They're trying to create a Superman, right? Superman made more sense than God, so they wanted to worship Superman. I keep bringing that up, but I want that maybe to be some kind of template in your mind that once God starts becoming something like a Superman, you know you've, you've entered past mystery and into something wrong. So uh, that's why I keep bringing that up. Um, hope that helps, maybe not. So, um, on your first blank there, the occasion for this, uh, for this book was Paul was trying to correct the Colossian heresy. They believe that the Son is special, but not the fullness of God, not fully God. Uh, this is why even in our creeds we have very God of very God when referring to, to the Son, trying to establish um, in fact, uh, um, to make this super reformed, uh, John Calvin himself wrote, a, uh, wrote on the, what he called the aseity of the Son, the, 
that the Son is fully God himself. Um, so, uh, let's look at verse 15 of chapter 1. I'm going to read it for you. He, referring to Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Okay, let's just take that much. Um, he is, Christ is the image of the invisible God. What do you think that means? Who's being referred to here as the invisible God? God the Father. God the Father, that's correct. So what does it mean to be the image of the Father? To look like him. Okay, yeah. And it's going to be a different kind of image than we are images, image bearers, right? We're image bearers. We are, there are things that are similar. We, are, we mimic in a creaturely way God. But this image is different, isn't it? There's a kind of similarity here that... Uh, even Christ talks about in the Gospels where he says, If you have seen me, you have seen whom? The Father. The Father. So there is, um, what is being communicated here is that this imagery is talking about being fully God, as the Father is fully God. There's a unity there that's so close that if you've seen the, seen the Son, you've seen the Father, because the Son is God. Father is God. And it says here, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you're trying to prove to people that think that Jesus was made by the Father, he's special, but he's not God, why would you say this? Why would you say the firstborn? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that go against your argument? What is he talking about here? The firstborn of all creation. His preeminence. Okay, now why would you say that? It's not a matter of chronological order. It's that he is before all things. Okay. And you're starting to quote more of this text, right? So, was it? We can even go to John 1 1. Yes. Where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Yes. So right there, it, it, it backs this statement up in saying that he was preeminent before that creation. Yes. Because the word had to exist before the creation even existed. That's right. So we have this statement here, firstborn of all creation, and then we have in verse 16, for. What, is the, what does that word tell you? For. Yes, so you, have, so you have an explanation, right? Uh, 
knowing the English language is wonderful. Um, it is almost as handy as knowing the Greek, right? Uh, I know a lot of times you think, well, I don't know the Greek, so how can I... Re-? If you know the English language and understand what's going on, you will know your Bible. Um, I'm not one of those anti-intellectuals you know, say, you don't need to know the Greek, I mean, it's wonderful to know the Greek. But if you know your English language, you can know your Bible. Um, so, when you see four, you say, what did the statement before mean? statement before means this. Okay, the statement before is the firstborn of all creation. For, what does that mean? What does firstborn of all creation mean? For by him all things were created. So we know that God, that the Son was not created. Because we know he's the creator. Right? And he created the things on heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So who created the, what, what are some of the things that are invisible? Angels, yeah. Who created the angels? The sun. Because it says it. Right here. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, through the sun. And what's that next thing say? For him. For him. What does that mean? Now, how could you be anything other than God if all things were created for you, right? For your glory. Who does God share his glory with, according to Scripture? No one. So when all of creation is made for you, he's referring to Jesus. He's referring to Christ. All of creation for Christ. Why does that mean? For his glory. Which would mean he would have to be God, as we understand God. Right? Just as much God as the Father. So this is Paul's argument. We want to make that clear before we move on because, um, because this is the grounding I mean, if we say that the, there's a son who is fully God, and there is the father who is fully God, we're already starting to form a trinity here, right? We just have to get to the spirit. But once we start doing that, we understand that we're worshiping a God that's very different than any other God uh, that has ever been thought up, right? We're going to come to some conclusions that are going to be a little... Disturbing about other gods. It may not be disturbing now, because we, when we think of other gods, we think of, what, Baal? I think, yes, Baal and Moloch, or different uh, gods of the Old Testament. But we're going to come to some other conclusions pretty soon um, that aren't as easy to grasp. Um, I'll get there. I'm just trying to bait you a little bit so you're like, ooh, anticipation. There's going to be some controversy, and that's always exciting. Okay, so, uh, what do we find out about the image, Son, and, and God from all eternity? So what we're talking about, this imaging of the Father, says there was a relationship to all eternity. So how long has Christ been the Son? Forever. Forever. 
the, the son-father relationship is not something that started at creation so that we can understand God. It is a foundational part of who God is, son-father. Now that uh, should make us think a little more deeply about what it means to be a parent, what it means to be a child of a parent, uh, what marriage means. These all have uh, mimicry, not of a neat way God thought it would work out nice on earth. I'm going to make these humans. And you know what would be really neat? Is if they uh, would get married and have children. That would be neat. Right? I think it would work well if you would have these things called communities. And, and I just think, you know, just make the clock work really nicely. The gears moving and, uh, you know, it would just be nice, right? That is kind of what um, American republicanism has become. And I, and I, don't, I don't want to get all political, but it, <laughs> I went to an NRA banquet last night. With my, uh, with my father-in-law. And I'm not... The NRA is wonderful. I like guns. They're cool. Um, I don't know if that's biblical but, or spiritual, but they are cool. Um, but um, the whole setup is very religious, but it's, and there's Christianity in it. Uh, you know what I mean? This republicanism of Christianity works. And so we should celebrate Christianity. We should celebrate Judeo-Christian values, bringing you know, the Jewish ideas. Just the idea of a family should stay together. It just, it just works. We should, it just works. It doesn't just work. That's not why we're doing it. We're doing it because we're imaging a triune God. We're image bearers. Marriage is about showing something that is triune. Uh, sonship, fatherhood, mimics something about who God is. That's incredible. Um, it, should, it should make us more aware of what's happening in our families. So when we talk about, on your handout there, firstborn... It's talking about the absolute priority over creation. He's the absolute priority over creation because he is not just the best of creation, he is the creator. It's not, creation isn't here just because um, this is an interesting thing God decided to do, it's to glorify him. And the next uh, blank there is, it's a pre-existent divine glory. Paul is making the case that the Son has been a divine Son long before anything else. Pre-existent divine glory. Uh, verse 17 says, he is before all things. That's what, um, that's what you had just said just a little bit ago. He is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now we're talking about salvation. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. 
Uh, so he holds all things together. Um, Hebrews 1.3 even speaks of this as well, that he holds all things together. This is his work. So I've been working a lot with uh, textbooks, particularly with uh, science textbooks, chemistry. Chemistry is an amazing thing. Uh, I think it was taught wrong to me when I was in college because it seemed boring there. But when I see this textbook, it's fascinating. Everything's chemicals. You're chemicals. You're sitting on chemicals. You're wearing chemicals. Uh, if you have gum in your mouth, you're chewing chemicals. Everything's a chemical. It's fascinating. Um, and so when you look at all these chemicals and how are they all holding together, scientists are talking about these atoms that are being held together by nothing. They don't understand what's holding atoms together. They have words to describe it, but they don't know how really it works. They don't know what keeps it together. You have these electrons that are moving around a nucleus. But they don't know why it stays together, why some electrons are further away and, they're, and they rotate further away. Some are closer together. They don't know why. It's that way. They describe it. But they don't know why. They don't know what holds it all together. They really don't. It's fascinating. But we know why. Um, and we do this in theology as well. We can describe things. We describe the Trinity. How, how does it really, how does it work logically? I don't know. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's amazing that we don't worship a Superman. But we worship God. Um, okay. And what this tells us, in your next blanks there, that Christ is not the Father. And he is not the spirit. So it, it's making a strong distinction here. A distinction so, uh, so sharp that people start to think, well, maybe Christ was created. Because they're two different persons. Put it that way. Um, and if... Next blank there, if equal in image, then equal in glory. Because this imagery is not speaking of the kind of image we have. It's not creaturely. That's his point. He's the perfect image of the Father. But it's not a creaturely image like ours because he is the one that created all this stuff. So it's not creaturely. It's the perfect image to the point where if they are equal in image, they're equal in glory. Meaning the Son is God, and the Father is God. Now the reason why I started out with God in his oneness last week is because if you forget that, it really starts to sound like you're, we're talking about two gods. Our minds are <clears throat> slowly being blown, and that's okay. It's okay. So we're not, we're not, today's class isn't so, so this is how you can understand it. I'm just describing, okay? And we're going to get to the point where you're like, one God who is personal to us, one God 
who we can talk to as a person because he is personal. And we even use male gender pronouns, right? When we talk about that one God who is really one and is one as he is three persons, each person being God. It's amazing. I can describe to you how particles work in the same way that still doesn't make sense, but people are more apt to believe in particles than they are about God, right? Okay. <laughs> Maybe you're all thinking about what I'm saying, and that's why you look so deadly serious. Okay. <laughs> so the sun is very God of very God. It's a great... And interesting, I don't know if this means anything to you, but... Calvin actually didn't like that phrase, very God, of very God, because the of almost sounded like he's deriving his godness from the, from the Father, and that's not what's happening. And I, I don't think they meant that. Um, I think they're trying to capture the two distinct persons, the one deity. Um, but nonetheless, if you would turn with me to John 6. Um, what I want to do is first, once we start saying there are two persons, right, because that's the argument that Paul is making there to make that separation, um, we have to keep in mind there's three persons. Um, John 6, well John is a, if you, if you have questions about the threeness of God and how uh, a real celebration of God in his three persons. Read the book of John. It's an incredible triune uh, book. Um, and John might be familiar to many of us. It's usually the first, uh, in John is the first verse we, we learn. What's, the, what's that verse that we learn? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son. Okay. So there's a split there, right? God loved us so much that he gave his son. So who are we talking about when it says, for God so loved? Who's, which part of the Godhead are we talking about? Father. They gave his only begotten Son. That brings us to Christ. That whosoever believes on him will not perish, won't die, but have everlasting life. Now, is the Spirit in that verse? The word Spirit isn't in the verse. But what we're going to find out is the Spirit really is in that verse. Um, and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, and what's great is, uh, there's this church near us that has the most bizarre sign. They, they put these bizarre things on their sign. Um, and I think it just fills me with joy every time I drive by. Uh, one time they put on... Uh, for, it was for a solid month they had on there. Not Calvinists. <laughs> the only thing that was on there for a month. 
Um, and uh, I think they're really against the... They, I don't know if they like... Well, okay, I almost said they don't know if they like the book of John, but what's interesting is they, have, they had on their... Um, more recently, it said, the elect are the whosoever. I thought, wow, maybe they are Calvinists after all. <laughs> but I think they meant something else. I think what they meant was, whenever it talks about the elect, they're talking about who knows. I think they believe whosoever means the who knows soever. <laughs> but they're right. The whosoever are the elect, right? Because verse six or chapter six tells us who the whosoever is, right? Um, John three sixteen is a covenantal verse. If you start losing the idea of covenant when you read through Scripture, you really will misunderstand most of Scripture. I think um, you start reading it like an American. You need to read it like a covenant theologian. Someone who understands covenant. When we read the, the verse like an American, we're like, well, American, we're independent. Bootstraps. Pull, them, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. You're responsible for yourself. You get yourself done. You do your own work. And we, we think that way, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm not trying to make fun of it. I'm just saying that's how we think as Americans. So you read John 3.16, you think, oh, who's whoever? Oh, I, I need to make this happen. So how do I make myself saved? Well, I have to make myself believe and make myself have this faith, and I can do it. And then God will, uh, I will, I will tell God when he comes in, right? And so uh, we misread the verse about God knocking on the door, and we say, I don't know if I'll answer it. Mm, now I will. Okay, come on in. You are now allowed into my heart. Um, and we totally misread that verse because that verse is for people who are saved, not unsaved, but we'll get to that one day. Okay, so, and we look at the whosoever and we think our thoughts. Uh, so, well, we ought to think of it as covenant people because the scripture is a covenant book. It speaks in covenantal terms. What's the covenantal conditions? The covenantal conditions are uh, those that believe, right, will be saved and grant, be granted eternal life. Those are the covenantal conditions. Okay? Once you establish the covenantal conditions, then you can go further and say, well, who is part of this covenant? Uh, John 6 talks about it. John 6.35, um, there it is. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So how can that be? Jesus says, I'm the one who, get, who I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said all this to you and you don't believe. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay? So what are we learning about the Father? This is something that I think we lose uh, 
a lot of times because we don't think in a triune way. The Father loves, John 3.16. The Father is loving us. I mean, I think in our society, we, it's easy for us to understand that Jesus loves us, and we all, we all understand that, and it's true. Jesus loves you. But we have to remember that this love of the Father is what sent the Son. The Father is the one who gives us to the Son. So if I can put it this way, why are you a Christian today? According to what I just said. Why are you a Christian today? The Father gave me to the Son. Yeah. Because of the Father's love for you, He gave you to the Son. And what does the Son do? The Son maintains and secures us, according to verse 39. He maintains and secures us. Once the Father has given us to the Son, the Son holds us, just like He holds all creation together, and nothing can destroy creation outside of Christ's own hold on each molecule of this, of this world. No one can snatch you out of His hand. He holds on to you. He's the maintainer and securer of your salvation. Okay. So I want you to look at this covenantal work that we're seeing. As the son came down and he said, I'm not doing my own will, I'm doing the will of my father. Okay. So on that next blank, it says the covenantal work of the Trinity. The Trinity works... Already in its relationship to us, the Trinity, God, works covenantally. Jesus brings this up all through John. I'm not here to do my will, but the will of the Father. Why does he keep saying that? What is, what is he referring back to? Is the Father just like, as he goes along, just making things up? Or has this will as things go along? Like, okay, well, they rejected you, so I want you to do this. This is now my will. Is the Father really waiting on us to do certain things and then telling Jesus this is what I want you to do? He wants us to see his glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Okay, yeah. He wants us, that's a great phrase, he wants us to see his glory before the foundation of the world. And in order to do that, what he did is he had a covenant made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's also proclaiming itself mm-hmm. to be God. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. And in order for us to see that, we have to think covenantally. Only God would make a covenant within himself before anything was created. So if you have a member of the Trinity on earth saying, I am part of that covenant made. You're talking to God, right? So in that covenant, the Father wills the work. That's your first blank there under the covenant work of Trinity. The Father wills the work. And this is the this is the part that helps us understand 
of the personalness of this. It's not that you have this unimaginable God that decided to will something. You have no idea why it just is this way. He wills it from what? John 3.16. He wills it from his love. That's a personal, personal God, isn't it? So the Father wills the work. The Son accomplishes the work of the Father. He is the accomplishment of this will. It's through his death and resurrection we have this accomplishment done. And in verse 63, down the, in the same, same chapter, let's read verse 63. It says this, um, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So the spirit produces the power promised in the work. Here this power is talked about as life. So the spirit provides the power. Here's something hard for people to understand. We are making this systematic theology book at my work. We're creating these objectives. And people in the room, when they hear the, one of the objectives, they're like, is that true? Because we said in one of our objectives to show the students that Jesus needed the Spirit through every step of his ministry. Why? Because the Spirit was power. And it seemed strange to them that, well, Jesus used his own power. He's God. Yes, he's God. But he stayed within the covenant work that they agreed upon before the foundation of the world. That the Son would accomplish the work. Spirit would be the power in Christ to do the work. And why are they doing this work? Because it's the will of the Father. Think of what you have once you take Trinity away. Once you take the threeness of God away, you don't have our God anymore. Right? And John 3.16 is a wonderful picture of that Trinity. The Father loved us so much that he gave the Son so that we might have what? Life. Where do we get the power to have that kind of life? Spirit. Through the Spirit. That's right. It's a triune verse. The conditions of the covenant are all there. And all three persons are there. And what you see down at the bottom there is a a little uh, outline that might help us. It's an, old, uh, it's an old picture that a lot of people have used in the past. Um, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but they are not each other. The Holy Spirit is not the Father. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son, nor is He the Spirit. Um... And what I wanted to do is try and bring these ideas across using Scripture because you can, you can speak on the Trinity without ever going into Scripture or at least picking pieces of Scripture out. And it's, I find it most convincing when Scripture uh, forces your head down into it. <laughs> you can't get away from it. But it does bring us to certain uh, conclusions. One conclusion is... Um, 
Who is someone serving if they say there is no Trinity? Yeah, it's not, it's not our God. Um, and it's a, it's a sad, it's sad and sobering when a Jewish person starts talking about their God. And because we are sharing the Old Testament text, we have a tendency to think, well, they're kind of thinking the same thing we are. But if their God is not a triune God, it's not our God. When a Muslim denies Christ and says, yeah, we believe in a we believe in God of the Old Testament, but there is no there is no son. That's not our God. It is a lie when someone says that we're worshiping the same God, they just don't know he has a son. That is one of the most hideous versions of the Trinity I've ever heard. So there's some humility there to take on as we start thinking about when, we have, when we're saying that our God is triune, we are separating our God from all other gods. He is a holy God. Holy meaning separated. He is not like any other God. And once someone describes their God as a monad, this mono thing, no matter how they try to copy our God, it is not our God. The other thing that this teaches us is something that I wanted to get into, but we don't have time right now. Um, and if you want, read the book of Ephesians. It's not that long. It's only six chapters. The book of Ephesians really brings out a triune God and gives very practical things we're supposed to learn from that, one being our unity as a church. <coughs> Your unity as a church stems from what God is like. Not that a church works best when we start liking each other. Not that we can do more as a church if we start liking each other. It is, this is how you image your own God. You are in unity with each other. You have different roles. And you do them the best of your ability for the unity of your church. For the unity of the church. And you try to outdo each other. In loving each other. When there's strife, you confront it because you don't want any disunity because there's nothing like that in God. And so we're, as we strive for loving each other, what we're doing is striving to be like the God who loves himself in his persons as one God in his unity. And it should humble us as we think about when we have strife against a brother in our church or a sister in our church. We are defying the image of God. Holding a grudge against someone is holding a distance between the, what your church is and what God is. It is saying the image of God is not important enough. This little spat I have is more important than imaging my God and having our church be the image of God on earth and so if you have time I challenge you to read Ephesians chapter or the whole book of Ephesians and note the triune work that's being done there and that constant recall to unity, unity, unity and the last uh, few chapters 
of submission, submission, submission. There's something about that in God. For us. So, uh, let's have a word of prayer. We're out of time. Uh, Again, if you have some questions, let me know. Um, Next week, uh, Andrew will be taking uh, the beauty of the Trinity. Demonstrating that the Trinity is not a problem we have to solve, but is something beautiful that actually solves problems that we have down here. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you have revealed uh, yourself to us. And that is humbling to us, mysterious to us, and exciting to us. We thank you that you are a great God. We pray that you will keep that uh, understanding of greatness in our hearts, that we might uh, praise and worship you better even today, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.